0: In our Bibles to the book of 1 John and 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, we uh, uh, slogged our way through the first chapter here, um, and uh, there's obviously some very important principles uh, that we see with that chapter where, um, you know, there's, uh, uh, a, a, if you will, this kind of Mindset of where John is trying to take us, um, specifically as we get towards the central portion of the book about what is against Christ or anti-Christ, and uh, that spirit that existed then, and it exists very much now in, uh, if you will, some of the spirit of the age, uh, and uh, if you will, has been throughout all the ages. um Specifically, the end times uh, that we are talking about in these passages. But uh it, it kind of gives this expectation of you know God gives this expectation of what a believer should be thinking and should be saying should be doing. Um, it's it's very clear that that we as believers, um, you know, we we we're we're asked of God to do many things, but a lot of it comes down to how are we going to approach things from the heart perspective. And this is where John's really getting at. Because again, we're talking about the issue, the theme of the book being love. Uh, The the heart of the issue is if we say we love God, there should be certain results that come about. Uh, When I was in organic chemistry class in college, there was all of these things that we had laid out before us, all these different chemicals, compounds, and so on and so forth that we would mix together with the expectation of certain results. And if we didn't do it the right way or material was contaminated, results didn't come out the right way, so on and so forth. But there was this expectation of this is what should happen. If I mix compound A with compound B, I'm going to create this organic compound, and this should be what its characteristics are. The same thing is true when we talk about God, when God is in us and God is dwelling in us and the word of God is dwelling in us richly and we're allowing the Holy Spirit to, to to have rule and reign over us and being very submissive to him and yielding. There is an expectation of what that result is going to look like. And that's kind of what we see here with the book of John. John's saying, look, you say you love God. We know God is love. But if you say you love God, here's what God's expectations of the results are going to be. This is what it's going to look like. And if we try to have this something else other than those results, then there was a problem in the equation somewhere. And that problem is not with God. The problem is with us. There is either a contamination of the vessel, if you will, or there's a contamination of the spirit, or something has produced a different result than what was expected. So as we get to chapter 2, this is where we're really going to start picking up the steam with what God's expectations are. And and John just comes right out of the gate in chapter 2, right after chapter 1, and gets to the material heart of the matter. Before we get any further, though, let's go ahead and go into the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. Thank you again for an opportunity, Lord, to just uh, be in your word and to study this book of 1 John. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will teach us, guide us, and direct us this evening. Our hearts would be very receptive and open to your word. The Lord, we consider these passages, consider our lives, and ensure, Lord, that we are doing exactly what you've asked us to do, and that that expectation is acceptable unto you in your sight. Lord, again, I just pray you'd set my flesh aside. Just use me this evening, Lord, to uh, um, just uh, bring you glory, praise, and honor for all that is done. And Lord, I pray that all of us would just uh, bring you, uh, um, just be pleasing in your sight, Lord, just by, by willing to listen and willing to hear and willing to apply what you have for us. Thank you again for those that are here tonight, and I pray this and ask it in your Son's precious and holy name, Jesus Christ, Amen. So, what do we have here in this in this passage in verse uh, verse one of chapter two? He says, "My little children," and again, I just kind of want to pause there because we find that uh, uh, he has a tendency to do that, and the reason being is because he looks at these individuals as his children being taught. Uh, these aren't his actual children. But he's taking care of them in such a way that he considers them his, if you will, his progeny, his, his, his specific, if you will, spawn, if you want to put it that way. But they are from him because he has taught them before. And we find very clearly that this is the case. Whoever he is writing to in this passage, he has talked to them uh quite extensively beforehand. Because, again, there's some expectations of what they should know. There is things that he brings to remembrance. You know, again, he talks about things that they've done in the past that he's aware of. All of these things. But we find that he uses this term of endearment, my children. My little children, specifically. And the reason that we have to look at that is because... Again, these are people that are not necessarily mature in the faith at this point. And I'll tell you this, the books of the Bible have been written to people that are of any type of maturity range. Um, you can take somebody that has uh, read this uh, book cover to cover, uh, you know, 500 times, and they still will get something out of it. You can take somebody that has never read it before and they read it for the first time, uh, and, and they just realize the expansive volume behind it. Uh, I really like that part where, where, where you have a young Christian that begins to grow. Cause growth is exciting, okay? Yeah. Growth is an, is a fun thing to watch. We like watching our kids grow up. You know, here I've got my, my daughters, they're, they're old now. <laughs> you know, got one that's 22, the other one's, uh, uh, you know, 20. They're, 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 you know, beginning to create lives on their own and things of that nature. Uh, it, it, it's exciting. This is an exciting time to watch them do that. They can't remain five years old all the time, nor would I want them to. I want them to grow up. Specifically, when we're dealing with individuals that are Christians, we want them to grow in Christ. And the best growth that we see is when they are children. Now, according to, uh, if you will, science and medical science, they say that nobody starts or stops growing till they're about the age of 25. So there have been people that, uh, you know, thought they were all done growing and so on and so forth, and then from 20 to 25, they had a growth spurt. That's happened. But but what we see is you know generally the most growth that we find takes place while they're children. So when we look at this book, we realize this is written very simplistically, so that a child could understand it. And I'm talking spiritual children. So when we begin to start off like this, he he he's, he's setting, if you will. The 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 uh, tone that is here, and while the tone is firm, the tone is also simple. The tone is firm but simple at the same time, and sometimes that's the way we have to be with children. So we find this here. He says, "My little children, these things I write unto you that ye sin not." And again, right out of the gate, he's again showing, hey, look, there's a reason I'm writing this. Well, we go through this book and there's a lot of things that we've talked about beforehand where he says, I'm writing unto you because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this. And we find here that one of the reasons, again, that he is writing this specifically to them is that he wants them to not sin. And I will tell you, that is the desire of any parent. You don't want to see your children sin. You don't want them lying to you. You don't want them stealing. You don't want them doing those type of things. Why? Because you don't want them growing up into an adult that does those things. You don't want them growing up to be a politician or a thief. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> you don't want them growing up to be a liar. You don't want them growing up being thieves. You don't want them to do those things. You want them to do what? You want them to do the right thing. This is John's mentality when he is writing this, that if you will, is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God that we get to read and we get the same application from. You may say, well, I don't think I'm a child in Christ. I think I'm more mature. I'm always willing to say I'm still a child because at some point in time if i start boasting of myself thinking that i'm something when i'm nothing uh, god has already talked about that over the book of james <laughs> you know that that's pride that's pride now obviously i should be you know checking to make sure that i'm growing that i can handle more than just milk that i can handle meat in scripture and so on and so forth and those type of things but i'm not going to sit there and say well i am such of a superior maturity level than you That itself is not mature. We can't go about doing that. Because then all of a sudden, next thing you know, is we start lording over everyone else. Well, you just proved your maturity level is like low on the totem pole. Low on the totem pole. But what we find here is he begins to write with his passion, if you will, against sin. And I will tell you, every single pastor every single evangelist, every single missionary can relate to this to this first part of this verse. Because as shepherds of flocks, we don't want to see that. We wanted to see people make the right decisions and the right choices. We don't want them going and going astray. We don't want to see those things happen. So what do we do? we present the word of God that has been written. The reason that I get up and I do what I do on Sundays and on Wednesdays is not for the purpose of my own flesh. It's not for the glorification of me. Because if I do that, then I immediately just need to remove myself from the pulpit. It's about, first and foremost, the glory of God. I do it because I love him, because he's given me a commission to do this. He's given me a calling to do this. I'm going to fulfill his will. And as part of fulfilling that will is my love and care for the congregation. And to do that, I want to make sure that what I'm doing and the reason why I'm saying these things is so that you guys would understand the difference, as the Levites did, of what is right and wrong, what is clean and what is unclean there's the mentality that's the idea behind it and sometimes yeah it's simple sometimes it's a little more complex sometimes it's more maturity is asked and sometimes less maturity is needed but what we find is we find that this is a common thread against any or for not against anybody but for anybody that is placed into a ministry role of any nature where they're over individuals. This should be the desire. We do it so that you won't sin. Because number one, I don't want to see the consequences of that. Nobody wants to see the consequences of that. Those are hard things to accept. Those are hard things to deal with. And while it may be the person that's going through it having those consequences, I will tell you this, just like every sin, there's a ripple effect, and it has an effect on everyone else. Whether people think it does or whether they think it doesn't. The fact is, is it does. That's a truth that we find in Scripture. But here he is, you know, John's purpose matches with what the will of God is. The will of God is that you wouldn't sin. I mean, what was it saying in Psalm 119, verse 11? The word of a hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Not sin against my neighbor, my spouse, my children, whatever, my boss. Because it starts off with the sin is against God first. Because right. that's how David looked at it. Yeah. When he sinned with Bathsheba, he said against thee and thee only have I sinned. He understood very first and foremost. Yeah, there was a lot of people that got affected by it. Uriah in particular, <laughs> the child, yeah. all of those things. There was there was people that that, and that continued to happen further on. That ripple effect wound up happening with Ahithophel later on in life. But what we find is, is we find that he had this understanding of first and foremost, before I try to fix anything else, I've got to make sure I'm right with God. I've got to get to that point. So this matches up with, with, with the will of God is that every believer should abstain from sin. And again, that is the purpose behind God's word, why it was written. A purpose behind the Word of God is, you know obviously teaching, instruction, salvation, words of life, all of those things that we're, we're very common and familiar with, but I will tell you this: One thing that is very, very important for us to understand is this concept is the more of this we get into our heart, the more Word of God into our heart, the less we are going to want and desire any sinful activity. It's going to become repugnant to us. We're going to say, "You, I don't like that. I don't want it. I don't want that thought existing. I don't want to even entertain those things. Nothing of that nature. It makes a change. So with this thought that we're having right now, John notes that, that, that when sin is committed, there is a legal if you will, application to what happens. Because look at it a little further on. He says, my little children, these things I write unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, and if any man sin, John knows that we're going to sin. John understands the fact that we are human beings. We still have fleshly desires. Paul comments about it in the book of Romans Nobody's saying that we're going to be completely sinless until we have done away with this body and those desires and those things have been fully replaced. And that happens when we get a redeemed body and we're with Christ and there is no more sin. Praise God. We're all looking forward to that day. But till then, John says, if any man sin, he doesn't want us to sin. We should abstain from sin. We should make sure that we understand the concept our sin is forgiven. But we still need to make things right with God. We still need to to go and confess when we are doing things that are against his will and against what he tells us to do. We need to get that taken care of with the correction act and repentance, all of that. But he says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Christ Jesus, the Righteous. Now, that word advocate is a legal term. It's a legal term. An advocate is somebody that, if you will, that stands up for another individual in court or in legal proceedings. Most of us here would have a hard time if we had to be our own attorneys and own lawyers. We'd fail at it. We, I mean, you know, we wouldn't know anything about law. We wouldn't know anything about all the laws that are out there. We wouldn't know about all those things that that are that are going on and that are proposed and so on and so forth. I mean, there's so many things that are out there nowadays that people don't even understand. There's all these things that we are currently being discussed in the new legislative sessions that are coming up, and I made mention of one of them that you know I know is not going to get passed. And it's a requirement that all Washingtonians be required to vote. If you're a citizen of Washington, you must vote. Granted, there's no, if you will, legal repercussions if you don't vote. It's not like they kick you out of the state or anything of that nature. It's not like you get a fine or have to pay double on your taxes or whatever. Uh, th- th- there's no teeth to it. So it's an unenforceable law, which then you know what happens when there's an unenforceable law. If there's, if it says the speed limit is 50 miles an hour, and you know that there are no officers on that day, what happens? You do whatever you want, right? Well, technically, no, but people do, and that's what would happen. There's other laws that are in place that that sometimes you need advocates for, specifically in medical cases to be the voice of the patient, to communicate things. And while we have those things in the physical world, it is based on the advocacy of Christ, who has stood in, if you will, the the, the court of judgment, has taken our sin, and then we get to the verse 3 here where he starts talking about the propitiation Again, another legal term he has taken that he's taken that punishment. he can stand when we are being accused and let's be let's be clear here on this. We are accused every single day. We're accused of things, whether it's the devil himself or one of those other entities that's out there that says, "Do you know what he did today? Did you see that? Just like over there with Job. Over in the book of Revelation, uh, specifically Revelation 12.10, one of the names, if you will, titles or labels that they that is given to the devil himself, Satan, Lucifer, is this, the accuser of the brethren. That's his job. The accuser of the brethren. Where do we get that from? Job. Remove that hedge of protection, he'll curse you to his face. Accuser. Accuser. You gotta be careful of people that just make accusations. Cause I'll tell you this, making accusations. I know of a guy right now. He, a bunch of accusations were made about him. Things that, you know, I don't know if they're true or not. But it forced him to leave his ministry, resign from being a pastor. Now the church is in derision. Accusations. You know, God has a thing, if you're going to make accusations, you better bring with some Witnesses. If you're going to make accusations against an elder or somebody that's, you know, in position of those stories, you better bring some people where you have documented evidence and facts about it. Because again, to quote somebody, (laughs) you know, your feelings really don't matter if there's facts. And here's the issue is that this is what Jesus Christ does all the time for us. And advocates. Some devilish entity whines about what we're doing and he says, it's covered under the blood. Really? You're going to forgive that? I did. You're going to forgive that? Oh, I already did. And how God views us. But the only way he can be an advocate of such nature is because of who he is, Jesus Christ. Now look at the description of him in his label, the righteous. Because there's no other advocate that can stand up there and defend in such way and say, I already took that punishment. I already went to hell for that sin. I already bled on the cross for that. I already died on that cross for that. That's been paid for. That's been taken care of. And here he is an advocate. An advocate is somebody who defends, vindicates by argument, and one who is friendly to the oppressed and the accused. In cases where there's situations that that there's abuse in a home, and a child is pulled out of that, that situation, the states and the kid agencies typically assign advocates for the children. Somebody that stands up and says, we're going to do what's good for the children, because we all know what the adults do. The adults do what's good for the adults. And sometimes the children, they just, they're along for the ride. And the advocate, and I understand what happens in the world today with all of these things. I understand the guardian ad litems. I understand some of the situations and some of the, the, the way they insert themselves. I totally understand that. But the idea of the advocacy is for somebody to stand up for somebody that can't for themselves. I can't stand in front of God and say, I'm just. But Jesus Christ can stand up in front of God, because he is God, and say, he is just because I paid for it. He is righteous because I paid for it, and I gave him mine. He is forgiven because I cleansed him. All of those things, the stuff that we talked about in the the last part of chapter 1, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness so that when we come and we you know if we are standing accused of uh, the devil or his entities we, we Jesus says i'm standing up for him it's nice to have somebody advocate for you it's nice when you're going through something that's difficult and you're, you you think you're alone and then somebody comes alongside you and says, you're not alone. I'll be there with you. I'll stand up for you. I'll be a character reference. I'll stand in that gap. I'll do those things. You know, Yeah, I may may get the illustration wrong, and and, and pardon me if I do, but uh, there was a situation where there was uh, um, a a a a girl that was abused, and she had a hard time. She was being fearful and things of that nature. And there's this group of individuals that advocate for children, and they are the most unlikely of people you would ever think. They're bikers. And man, do they look mean. And they probably are mean. They probably have had rough lives. And you know what they do? They become, they became that girl's friends and stood when anybody tried to do anything for, against her. They stood, if you will, and advocated for her. The oppressed. The oppressed. I don't think anybody dare bully her in school. Otherwise, you know, there might be some issues. (laughs) They're going to have to deal with those guys. Could you imagine that? Those individuals standing up and saying, we're going to do what's right. We're going to stand up for those. And I will tell you, if there is any person... Or persons that have been oppressed in this world. It is a sinner that has not found the freedom in Jesus Christ. Because sin is so oppressive. It dominates. It smothers. It suffocates. It squeezes. It is the most horrendous thing, and it even permeates into your physical life. And at some point, they say, I can't do this anymore. But praise God, there is an advocate that says, if you just receive, I will stand in that gap. I will do those things. And that's what Jesus Christ does. You know, he, 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 here's the accuser of the brethren, as I said, he, what does he do? He seeks to destroy by accusations. Just by accusations. I mean, good grief. It just look at what happens when one person does something wrong and it's plastered all over the news. Let's just take it, it, it and, and again, I'm not saying anybody is right, anybody is wrong. Uh as far as, you know, who's associated with not this this person, but you take that guy Epstein and what he did and the just disgusting things that he did that were sinful, nobody wants to be associated with him. All of a sudden, they're talking about these lists coming out and so on and so forth, and whether it was a big bang or a big bust, who cares? The fact is, nobody wanted their name associated with that. Why? Because what's going to happen, whether they were a person that just happened to be selling him plastic cups or actually participating in the sin, all of a sudden, they're associated with that person, and they become accused. It was dangerous. Again, that's why you need to make sure that you are above reproach, above board, who you do business with. you got to be careful with those things. But what we find here is we find that God says, look, I'm going to stand up for that person. I'm going to plead the case. I'm going to show, if you will, uh, what has been forgiven and the cause of his forgiveness. The cause of the forgiveness is the fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross righteous, without sin, and paid for it. John's saying, look, this is kind of, if you will, some of the mentality that we need to keep. Jesus Christ will always stand up for us, but let's not go into the realm of sin. Let's not go into that direction. And we find right there in, in, in verse two, where he says, talking about Jesus Christ, and he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. For sins of the whole world. Propitiation defined is this it's the act of appeasing wrath or conciliating favor of an offended person. And God, Jesus Christ Himself does that he appeases that the wrath of God is exhibited towards those that refuse to receive Christ in the end there will be people that go to hell because they stand there and they say well I rejected your son my name is not found in the Lamb's book of life and he will say, depart from me. And they are cast into the lake of fire. That is a terrifying thought. That is a terrifying thought. But you know what appeases that wrath? Jesus Christ. Which is why it becomes important to have him as our savior. To have him as our advocate. The, the lost don't have that. Jesus Christ is not advocating for somebody that is lost. He is not the propitiation for somebody that is lost. Somebody that has come to Christ and has received Christ as their Savior, he is the advocate and he is that propitiation, that satisfaction that it has been paid. The sin debt is taken care of. Consolation has been made. No other payment is required. And when we look at this, this is, I mean, turn over to uh, John chapter, the the, the gospel of John, John chapter one. And we find there's a lot of parallels here. In John chapter one, after, you know, John writes down all of these things about Jesus Christ, who he is, the fact that he's God, uh, and then he you know, starts talking about John the Baptist, not the same John, but John the Baptist, who was the herald of the king, if you will. um, And, and here he is in the wilderness declaring Jesus Christ, saying that he's coming, he's coming. And, and we go through all of that. And in verse 29, here's John the Baptist. And it says, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Not the elect, not a specific group, not just Israel, not just people in God's Word Baptist Church, not just 8,000 people. (laughs) Who? The world. That sin debt has already been paid for. That's like somebody says, The car is yours for free. Just come pick it up. Don't I have to pay the taxes? No. Tax is paid for. I don't have to pay tabs for it. Tabs are paid for the rest of your life. Nothing? Nope. It's free. It's yours. Just take the gift. And when we realize that 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 verse over there in chapter chapter 2, verse 2 of uh, First John, he's saying not only our sins, and he's saying ours as referring to believers. He didn't just pay for our sins. He didn't just pay for those that are sitting here in God's Word Baptist Church right now. No, he paid for the sins of the world, as it says. And right here, the same thing that he says, take away the sins of the world. That even matches up with the most well-known verse of the Bible in John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever uh, perish, or excuse me, whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. I want you to think about that for a second. What does he say right there? He says, for God so loved the world. The world. These are all things that when we begin to realize who who, who he is, that he satisfied that payment for every soul. And it exhibits his desire to see every soul saved. It fits in with what Peter says when he says God is not slack concerning his promises, as men count slackness. But what? God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God has always wanted every single human being that has ever walked the face of the earth to be saved. And we look at that and we th- we, 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 in our mind's eye, we go, well, that's not going to happen. But God already paid for all of it. He, he, again, he didn't just bear partial sin. The whole Reformed theology idea and mentality is out there that he only paid for part of the sin debt. Meaning he only paid for certain peoples. Not all of it. Not all of it. That's the L in the tulip part. Limited atonement. Limited. I'm sorry, but who limited God? Who, 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 before Calvin, it was Augustine. Let's go, you know, let's throw, let's throw them all under the bus. And you, you know what? I'll even, I'll even throw Muhammad under the bus too, because he read a bunch of Augustine's stuff and followed Augustine's, uh um, uh, um, uh, followers and listened to what they were saying. So what do you find? You find Calvinism in, in Muslim theology. And I'm just like, oh, you've got to be kidding me. And, and sure enough, you know, people try to deny it and, and so on and so forth. I actually saw the, this iman, he was trying to deny that that was actually the case, but in the process of trying to prove that that wasn't the case, he proved that it was true from the, from the Quran. And I'm just like, ah. Oh. But the fact is, is this, God didn't limit His love to any, uh, he, he didn't do that. Could you imagine telling your spouse, oh, I, you know, here we are approaching Valentine's Day, our anniversary coming up here real, real quick. Uh, could you imagine just saying to your spouse going, oh, you know what, I, I, instead of saying, I love you so much, or I, I just love you with every, instead of saying, I only love you a little. What? Well, I'm going to limit the amount of love that I give you. You know, you're only, you're only deserving of so much. You'd be like, what? What kind of relationship is this? Excuse me while I check out of it. No, we don't expect that. Nor should that ever be a conversation, by the way. But I will tell you this, you know, you 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 want a good partner, you want a good spouse. I'll tell you, here's how you go about doing. Look for the one that loves God more than he loves you or she loves you. Because if they love God and you love God, and then both of you are brought together by God to love God the same and desire that, that's what will bind you together. That will bring about a, a marriage that is pleasing unto the Lord. Not mutual agreement of uh, likes and dislikes. Um, there's, and I've actually kicked it around, and I, I keep kicking it around, and maybe I'll do it one of these days, but there's this whole thing that, that kind of got developed, and um, long story short, after doing some research and my wife doing research and me looking at things and putting some things together and kind of modifying some stuff, kind of came up with this idea of what this courtship questionnaire looks like. Before you enter into courtship, before you enter into saying I am going to engage in marriage and so on and so forth on all of these things, there's this list of questions. That, that That the idea behind it is is for us to look at it and say, "Am I doing the right thing here according to God?" It's it's one of those moments where you pause and you ask yourself, "Okay." What does this look like to the Lord? What am I doing? Am I willing to do these things? Am I willing to commit to this? Am I willing to commit? I mean, they're very pertinent, important questions. But one of the things that we find here is that we find that, that that, that you know, when it comes to what the Word of God does for us and what the Word of God teaches us what the Word of God uh, shows us as far as uh, his advocacy and to plead his case and and to show all of it it shows and demonstrates his love towards us, which is what John is getting towards in this book. It is if you will uh, going through and taking a look at what he says over there in Roman what God says in romans five eight but God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. that's love. That's love. To demonstrate love before we even had an inkling of what the love of God looked like. He was willing to give himself on the cross for that. He was willing to die for us. To satisfy, if you will, the offense of sin by his sacrifice. That propitiation. The fulfillment of it. But as we kind of move on here a little bit further into this next verse, we we, we get to verse three, and he says, and hereby do we know the, do we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. This is an important principle. Knowing God's love for his creation, we, we can begin to know him more personally. Because love that is demonstrated clearly begins to reveal to somebody what their desires are, what their characteristics are. Things come out, okay? But I will tell you this, but to truly know God Yes, that love is going to be there. And if we love him, we are going to want to know what his will is. We're going to want to know what his commandments are towards us. And again, let's be clear. Just because we don't follow Old Testament commandments doesn't mean that the believer right now doesn't have commandments for them. We do. We do. We don't get to go, yay, I'm free of commandments, I can do anything I want. No. <laughs> As a matter of fact, God says specifically, God forbid. <laughs> It doesn't mean we get carte blanche. It doesn't mean that we're free, you know, on our own recognizance to do whatever we want to do. No, because why? It's not our life to begin with. He paid for it on the cross. But if we really want to know him, and this is where, where John gets to this, if we're going to say we love him, then we're going to really know what he wants we're going to want to know what his expectations of us are. We're going to want to know what he tells us to do. And he makes it clear here. He says, uh, hereby do we, uh, do we know, excuse me, and hereby we know, do, bleh, I'll get it out one of these days. And hereby we do know that we know him. And this is, an, if you will, an assured fact. This isn't just kind of a casual thing like, hey, I, you know, just because I met the person one time, you know, I kind of, I kind of know somebody. No, this is, we know. We know that we know. We know that we can know him. He's not unknowable. He's not unknowable. He's not fickle. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't, uh, do, uh, you know, if you will, you know, jump from one thing to another. And again, that's one way you can always tell whether it's a false religion or not. They change the doctrines all the time, all the time. And a lot of times it's just to be accepted in the world to be accepted in the world. I told you back in, back in the day uh, when I grew up in Idaho, uh, there was a very large uh, Mormon population that was there. They, they wound up building the second largest temple in the world in Boise, Idaho at the time. Um, and uh, we were, I remember that thing being just, it was just an empty lot, and then one day this wall gets built up around it, and I'm like, what are they building at? Prison? And uh, next thing you know, it starts this temple being resurrected they're not resurrected but erected and I'm just like what is that thing I'd never seen anything like that in my entire life the people in Boise are like what is going on what is this and of course it was the Mormon temple and they wanted it. you know all the Mormons were excited about it and stuff but man look let's just put it this way kids can be cruel right got a testimony time (laughs) kids can be cruel i mean i remember some of the jokes back in the day okay you know politically correct jokes No, man back in the 80s and 90s political correctness that went out the window a lot no we didn't have any of that there were horrible jokes horrible jokes running around and and the way that the 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 native uh you know idahoans Made fun of the, the Mormons was just cruel. It was just cruel. The things that we said about them. But the things that we said about them, I hate to say, were truthful. Because they were very much racist. All of a sudden, they, they dropped that doctrine like a hot rock. The next thing you know is they're talking about, no, 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 we've always accepted them. Let's go back and read some of those older documents. Yeah. And they do this. What documents? I can't find them. <laughs> All I'm going to say is, thank God for Google sometimes. Can't You can't erase that now, can you? It's out there on the Internet. It's there forever but the end result is is they change the doctrines. I say all that to say this, God doesn't change. His love for His creation has never wavered. It has never been diminished. The longer that life goes on, He doesn't sit there and go, really, these people? No. His love, when He created this earth, and when this earth ends will always be the same. It'll never change. And His love that He has for us just baffles my mind sometimes. And He says, look, you can know me. You can know me. But let's start with this. Start by just keeping my commandments. Start by keeping my commandments. A fairly simple ask, a very simple request. Move over to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Who knows what happens, or not Deuteronomy, Exodus chapter 20, sorry. Who knows what happens in Exodus chapter 20? Without looking, what happens in Exodus chapter 20? The Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are given here. And the first ones that he deals with is obviously who he is and what, you know, what they're going to do. But one of the things that he says here very clearly that he, he, he and I, I want to read these, these these verses here. It's reiterated over there in the book of Deuteronomy. But but in verse one, it says, And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There's commandment one. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, there's commandment two, or a likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself uh, to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the third and fourth generations of them that hate me. Now, just keep that in mind. That iniquity is visited on those that hate him. They hate him. But he makes it very clear here. He says he's a jealous God. Jealousy is not a bad thing. Jealousy is a good thing. You should be jealous over your spouse. Why? You don't want anyone else sniffing around. No. That's not, that's not something that you want. The end result is, is you know, in the Bible even talks about a jealous husband. Yeah, it even talks about what he's what he's allowed to do. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and it, and it's well within his rights to do that. God's jealous. He doesn't want he doesn't want anything else taking the place of him. Yeah. Why? Because he does love and care for us. Because look at what he says in verse 6. And showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. This goes right hand in hand with what John's talking about. That advocacy, that propitiation was the mercy of God, is continued the mercy of God in our life. And what we wind up seeing here is he says with With this love, he says, "If you love me, as Christ says, what? keep my commandments. The obedience to God is an act of love. It's an act of love. Submission to God is an act of love. Yielding to God is an act of love. Those are things that people don't like to listen to today. Why? Because, again, as I said earlier, it's, you know, the whole rebel mindset. But what do we find here? He says, look, I'll show mercy unto anybody that says, hey, I love God. But as part of that expectation is if we say we love God, we're going to keep his commandments. We're going to keep his commandments. And, and, and we're going to get into this thought process a little bit more as we continue on down through here, because he starts talking about, uh in, in, in verse 4, this, he says, and then does something different. Because going back to First John chapter 2, verse 4, I'm just going to just kind of, you know, broach this subject just a little bit here. He says, he that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John just gets right to the point, just like his brother James. <laughs> gets right to it and says, okay, here's the situation. You say you love God, but you're not willing to do this. Somebody's lying, and that's not God. Right. We should be wanting to obey God. And, and, and regardless of whatever it is. Regardless of whatever it is. God says, look, you say you love me, you're going to keep those commandments. And again, keeping isn't just obedience, by the way, too. And we're going to explore that thought process. Keeping is not only obeying, but it is also guarding. Right. It is making sure that it aligns with what God says because there's a lot of people out there that can say, "Well, God said this, and God told me to do that." Well, if it was if it doesn't match what God's already said in His Word, then God didn't tell you to do that. Something else told you to do that. Right. Well, it said it was God. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no, uh, I guarantee you that wasn't God. I've had people tell me, "Well," Well, 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 God told me to do this and do some, you know, things. And I'm like, okay, how, how did he tell you to do that? Were you reading? Where were you reading? Oh, no, 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 no. I had a vision while I was sleeping and I'm like, oh dear. If you had a vision while you were sleeping, it's either probably the pain medication you're taking or the, uh, the pizza that you ate when you shouldn't have eaten it that late at night or something else. Because I'll, I'll just reveal to you, when I was in the hospital and they were feeding me pain meds, I had some crazy stuff. I saw Abraham Lincoln with his tiny little body and a big giant head dancing on top of a stack of pancakes. Yes, he was. He was wearing a hat. He had a little cane and he was doing this little... Tsh, and I'm sitting there going, hmm, that's interesting. Not real, Okay. Not real. You got to be careful because the devil will transform his ministers into ministers of righteousness. And he himself transforms himself into an angel of light so that he looks good. It doesn't match this book. Don't listen to it. Don't listen to it. We'll explore that, Lord willing, next week. But let's go ahead and be dismissed with a word of prayer. Actually, next week's potluck. So Nemeth's got it. Ha-ha, no. <laughs> we'll get that the week afterwards. So let's go ahead and uh, dismiss with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, and thank you for the time. Thank you again, Lord, for just a, a good day to come and worship you and uh, be around believers, receive edification. And, uh Lord, I just, I'm so thankful for all that you've done for us. And above all, the continued advocacy and the propitiation, Lord, that payment for sin satisfying what I could never do. And Lord, I just, I'm so thankful for that. And then above all that, to give us your word and to give us your holy book that clearly shows us what your expectations are. Lord, I pray that we would just have that heart's desire throughout the rest of this week to please you, to do your will, to keep those commandments, Lord, to be obedient unto you, that we would bring that glory, praise, and honor to who you are and what you've done. I pray you take us home safely tonight. Thank you again for all you've done for us. And this I ask in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.